Hello guys, today I'm going to read chapter 27 of The Shakespeare Stealer. So here I go. Mr. Armin had taught us in fencing class never to retreat for an opponent, for it is defensive and not an offensive posture. He seemed to have forgotten his own advice. He was in almost constant retreat before Falconer's attack. I wanted to shout, shout encouragement and instructions to him, and he had so often done it to us. But he, but even had my tight throat been able to form the words, I feared distracting him. So I watched in anxious silence. Falconer grew more confident as the duel went on, pressing his advantage, driving Mr. Armin backward first one step, then another. Mr. Armin awarded blows easily enough, but often failed to return them. Finally, he found an opening and delivered the edge blow that he could have sorely wounded Falconer, except that he observed his for- its force with the hem of his cloak. In the the same instant, Falconer stepped forward and thrust Mr. Armin's unprotected chest. Mr. Armin spun aside, but not quickly enough. The point pierced his doublet and passed through his rib along his ribs, making him gasp in pain and stumble back. Falconer withdrew the thrust again, meaning to catch Mr. Armin unprepared. But Mr. Armin was better prepared than he seemed. Instead of beating the blade aside, he performed a maneuver I had never seen, never before seen, and had never yet seen since. In truth, I thought it was a blunder. He fell backward under Faulkner's blade and landed in his outstretched left hand, at, at the same time thrusting his sword before him, parallel to the ground. It took Falconer squarely in the belly and drove in halfway, halfway to the hilt. Falconer gave a gasp of surprise and drew back. His hood fell away from his face, revealing his startled and scowling countenance. The skin of his face looked tight and twisted, as though something were pulling at his skull. The seized blade of Mr iron sword of his cloak-wrapped hand, and with a contemptuous gesture, jerked it free and flung it aside. For a moment, it seemed as though collapsible sword. I half expected him to laugh and come at Mr. Armin again. Then the blood began to well from the wound, spreading across, across his doublet, dyeing it red, and it released with a shock that this was no illusion. This was not sheep's blood spurting from the bag, but his own life's blood draining away, and no amount of bandaging would staunch it. Yet we had to try. Though Mr. Armin was bleeding himself from the gash under his arm, he stripped off his doublet and his linen shirt. We knelt next to Falconer, who had sunk into stones of the street and tied a wrap of cloth about him. He pushed it impatiently aside, 
Let it be, he said, in a voice so unlike his usual growl, and I blinked in surprise. It's no use. Mr. Armin lets the shirt drop and puts an arm under Falconer's head, and he sighed heavily and lay back. He seemed less like a man in pain than one who is simply unwretchedly weary. His face was weary, too. In full daylight, there was something curiously mask-like about his features. He pressed a hand to his face, as though trying to hide it from our view, but his words said the opposite. I suppose you have a right to see the true face of the man you have slain. As he watched in astonishment, he plucked at the dark skin of his cheek and fingernails and pulled away a great chunk of it. There was a a reluctant scar that had had been there and was now a smooth, pale patch of skin. Again, his fingers dug at his face and this time pulled away a portion of his hooked nose, leaving its straight and similarly pale skin. His eyes turned to me, and, and the look of them was almost amused. You know me now? I swallowed hard. hard. I, Mr. Bass. And you, he said to Mr. Armin. But you knew before, did, did you not? I suspected it. Still, it was a good disguise, was it not? My master, my master's piece. Everyone's idea of what a Jew looks like, eh? An excellent disguise, Mr. Armin said. Such a talent should not be wasted. I agree. The very reason I left Chamberlain's men. There were too many fools in it to suit me. Better a company of fools than the company of thieves. Mr. Bass coughed and wiped the corner of his mouth. A bit of red smeared the black of his hand. Perhaps so, but you must allow that I, that I had the good taste of the, to steal only from the best. Those were the last words he spoke in this life at any rate. Though death had taken my fellow's orphans, Dr. Bright's patients, I had never seen a man die at the hand of another and had no notion of how I could recap it. I glanced at Mr. Armin as it for a cue. He avoided, avoided my gaze and busied himself folding his doublet to crop up Mr. Bass's black-dyed head. I had not shed tears in a long time, nor did I shed them now. All the same, I was overcome with a strange sadness, at odds with relief I had expected to feel. Now Now that the threat which had hung over me for so long was removed, the sensation was something like that I'd felt for Julia. 
when she had been forced to relinquish her position as a player. I could give no name to it, unless perhaps it was the word Julia had once tried to acquaint me with compassion. We sat with the dead man, ignoring the galloping crowd that had gathered until the constable until a constable came and summoned a cart to bear the body away. The constable knew Mr. Armin, and he was satisfied that the duel had arisen over a stolen property. He let us go free. We both had be, we both had had our fill of the things, so and so walked back to the globe by the way of the bridge. How is it you kenned, Mr. Bass? I asked. I might ask the same of you, but I'd rather but I'd rather you told your story to the company as a whole and let them judge you. Will they will they turn me out, do you think? I can't speak for them. As for how I knew Simon Bass, and the truth is, I was in his company a short while before I came here. They were a sorry lot. Not only did they steal scripts, they often borrowed the name and reputation of some respectable company. They would give a single performance and depart in the dead of the night, often with continent. Uh, contents of the town's treasury. They seldom played the same town twice. There were sources and places where Bass dared not even go on legitimate businesses without disguising himself. But why bother to disguise himself for me? I suppose he didn't want to risk your giving him away. Or maybe he believed you'd follow orders better if they came from Falkland. I was right about that. I shook my head, still unable to quite understand. But how could a bear to play a part for so long a time and never reveal his true self? Perhaps... Mr. Armin said, it was his true self. The Chamberlain's men were, were more lighted than I expected or deserved. Both Mr. Pope and Mr. Armin argued on my behalf. Even Mr. Shakespeare, who had most cause to call to my dismissal, seemed too inclined to forgive me. Only Jack spoke out against me, and not very vehemently. So, so it was that I was permitted to stay apprentice with the company, and I was very grateful for it. I recognized now that I was being offered something more than than just a career as a player, acting out a wary 
variety of roles. I was also being offered the chance at real-life role as a valued member of the Globe family. My only cause for regret was that Julia had not been so fortunate as I. What had become of her, no one seemed to know. Neither had we heard any news of Nick, but in his case, no one cared much. When several weeks went by with no word from Julia, Sandra and I persuaded Mr. Arman to accompany us into the gloomy depths of Alstadia, where we made a few inquiries. The man named Hugh recalled hearing that she was working as a serving maid or a household in the pretty, in, in pretty France that was that colony of French Amerigas just outside the walls of the city. Sandra and I tried to track her down there, but neither of us knew how enough French to make much headway. Although the summer and into the fall, my sildew at the globe remained hectic. In addition to all my new roles, I was given the task of copying out the individual sides from the book of each new play. Still, I doubt that a day went by in which I did not think of Julia and wonder how she fared. I began to fear that she had joined her father at his anniversary trade and disappeared into the city's underworld, in which case we might despair of ever seeing her again. Then, a week before Christmas, we were preparing Twelfth Night for presentation at the court. Julia entered our lives again, briefly, well known as Messenger I had so often played, who delivered his message and then departs. Mr. Pope and Sander and I were on our way home after trying a performance at which three so-called gentlemen took seats upon the very stage, thrust their feet into the players' paths, and di distracted us with their witty comments. So busy we were we venting our irritation that we scarcely noticed the serving maid who approached us until she spoke our names. Which? Sander? We halted, stared, and stared at her. Julia? I said. She laughed at the looks of surprise. Yes, it's me, disguised as a serving maid. Good day, Mr. Pope, she added, not very cordially. Mr. Pope bowed slightly, as if to a lady, which I had to remind myself Julia now was. We've all been wondering what became of you. Nothing of any consequence, I'm afraid. That is unfortunate, Mr. Pope said, and I could tell that his words were sincere. I truly wish that the things could have worked out differently. So do I. Her tone was still far from friendly. Mr. Pope cleared his throat uncomfortably. Well, you'll want to talk with your friends, I expect. I'll bid you good morrow. She made him a curtsy, 
that was neither very graceful nor very gracious. Then, when Mr. Pope was out of the hearing, Sandra said, You might have been more tough might have been more kind. It wasn't his fault he had to go. I know that. It was no one's fault, really, or everyone's. It's just that I haven't quite gotten over it. She tossed her hair, which had grown long, and went on more cheerfully. But I didn't come open up old wounds. I came to tell you some good news, actually. It seems that I may have a chance to be a player after all. Truly? I said eagerly. You've changed, they've changed the rule? No, no, I'm afraid not. But you see, Mr. Hemmings once told me that in France, women are permitted to act on the stage. So I've been working in the household for French wine merchants, saving up my wages for passage money and the learning language and well the long it short of it is we i sail for france in the morning that's the good news i asked yes aren't you happy for me oh i of course that's a happy as that's as happy as which gets i think sander said I shook my his head. I and shook his head. Gog's bread, Julia. It's hard enough learning lines in English. How are you going to do it in French? She gave me an indignant look. Ne parlez français très bien, monsieur. She laughed and held up his hand in surrender. Very well, Mademoiselle. Uh, if, mademoiselle, if anyone can do it, it's you. Best of luck, I mean. Bonne chance. Merci, she courtesied again, less awkwardly. Which, aren't you going to wish me luck? Aye, I said glumly. glumly. Good luck. She reached out and took my hand. You needn't look so forlorn. Come now, smile a little for me. This business of friendship is was a curious thing, I thought. Almost as difficult to learn the business of acting. Sometimes you were expected to tell the truth, to express your thoughts and your feelings, when other times what, what was wanted was a lie. And a bit of disguise. I was still but apprentice in the art, but slowly and painfully I was learning. Though in truth I felt more like crying, but I put on the smile she asked for, or as re or as near to it as I could come. Up Yorkshire we say Fair achieve you. She squeezed my hand. Fair achieve you, then. He, she backed away, as though compelled to leave, yet reluctant to let from her sight. At last, she turned and hurried off in the direction of the thing, which tomorrow would carry her to the sea. 
As I watched her go, tears welled my eyes. And for the first time since I was a child, I let them come. Now I understood why she had had left us before without without farewell, any farewell. Parting was not I, as I had heard one of Mr. Shakespeare's characters say, a sweet sorrow. It was as bitter as a gall. Behind us, Mr. Poquitas wrote again, She's a lucky girl. Embarrassed, I wiped at my eyes. She is that. He put a hand on Sandra's shoulder and mine. We, we'd best be heading home now, boys. Goody Willingson has promised us toad in the hole for tonight's repast. Toad in the hole? I said, laughing, uh, laughing a little despite myself. Don't laugh, but Sandra said, it's good, almost as good as bubble and and squeak. It certainly doesn't sound very good, but I can rely on your judgment, I suppose. You can do that. As the three of us, Mr. Pope and his boys, walked home and reflected on these new terms and all the others I had learned, the unlearns and unlearned. Since my arrival here, but a few months before, though I hadn't quite learned a new language as Julia was doing, I felt almost as though I had. For every ken and wis and I, I had dropped from my vocabulary, I had picked up a dozen new and useful terms. So were fencing terms, some were peculiar peculiar to London, some more jargon of the player's trade, but the ones that I had made most difference to me were the words I had learned before but never fully understood their import. Words such as honesty and trust, loyalty and friendship, and family and home. So that was was the book of Shakespeare's Dealer. So so bye guys. See you later. See you later. See you later. See ya. See ya. Later. Bye guys.